This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast, which is all about helping people break through barriers in their life and build the life they want to live intentionally. And today we're doing another COVID-19 remote recording. Um, and we're doing it with Brent Willis, who happens to be my new boss at New Age Beverages. Uh, Doesn't feel <laughs> morning, Brent. How are you? I guess it's morning. afternoon, right? <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. Just in Denver, you can see I got uh, Colorado in my background, which is my view. So um, I feel sort of off the grid here. Beautiful, beautiful. What are you, what are you wearing there today? Uh, this uh, is a kind of a mishmash of stuff. If you've ever seen the movie Apocalypse Now, this yeah. is the first cavalry division, and that was my division, and we were just crazy. Believe it or not, my company was called Wild Willie's Warriors. I've seen <laughs> Uh, moved on from then uh, and this is the symbol for the first calf uh, this is some kind of weird symbol from West Point which is where I did my undergrad but I'm glad to be done with that let me tell you and this is a symbol that Phil Knight stole from the Greek gods uh, to make it his own company logo he turned in, he turned Nike into Nike right <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, that's pretty exciting. I mean, actually, Apocalypse Now is one of my favorite films. Captain Kilgore is—he's uh, the guy leading the first the first Air Cavalry in that uh, in that film. Is that right? It's a crazy film. Yeah, I was yeah. I was probably as crazy back then. But uh, <laughs> um, Charlie, don't I serve. Marginally moved on since then. <laughs> good, good. Well, I wanted to—I I thought it'd be good today to talk about a few things. To um, one, talk about COVID nineteen a little bit. Like what's happening. You know, what, you've run some big public companies, you've worked in big public companies, um, run divisions of them, Coca-Cola, InBev, uh, you built today what is the fastest growing beverage company in the world, uh, New Age Beverages. Um, so you've got a, you know, we're in 60 countries, you've got an interesting worldview on what's happening out there. Love to talk about that. Also like to go over kind of what's happening at the business, because I know a lot of people watching this are involved in New Age Beverages now and New Age, uh, known you by New Age. So I thought maybe we'd talk about that a little bit. And I'd love to dig into your history. In particular, this podcast, I think you know, is all about helping people break through barriers in their lives, create the worlds they want to live in rather than the ones they've inherited. Or I think yeah. in this case, you know, the new normal is getting pretty funky. This is unusual you know. now, right? Yeah. So maybe we'll start there. I mean, you know, I had some, some friends call me the, the other day. I've had a number of different dinner conversations about this. Um, we, we're doing some socially distant dinners. Um, but a, one of the questions that keeps coming up that's in everybody's mind, I think, is when is this going to end? When do we go back to normal? Or do you think this is some version of a new normal? Um, well, the thing I can't get out of my mind, Dave, is I sort of feel like this is a global shitstorm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know a better way to put it, right? Sorry for the language. No, you can say anything. You can, kiss, you can say anything you want on this podcast. Right? <laughs> but um, it's, a, it's a pretty bollocked up situation globally. Uh, and I actually don't think things will ever get back to normal. You know, I worked, I, I grew up in Europe and I worked in Europe for a number of years. And, you know, everybody you see, you kiss on the cheek, you know, depending on the country once or twice or those kinds of things. And Three times in the Netherlands, Brent. Is that what it is? Well, you guys are a little <laughs> bit weird there too. And you, you drink more milk and eat more cheese than anybody I know of on the planet, which is why you're eight foot tall. But <laughs> uh, um, 
but you know, I just don't think people are going to go back to that kind of connection. And it just goes to, to show how important social is going to be part of our life and digital is part of our life. And it's tough because, you know, as humans, I, you know, I was a big student of Maslow. Mm, and when you build in brands that you want to connect across borders, you have to really connect them to values. And if you think about humans, we like to operate in tribes and move in groups. So it is not norm normal for us to be isolated and off the grid and not connecting with people. So I think fortunately we've got Zoom, we've got, you know, we've got Teams internally, we've got Skype, we've got all sorts of tools. And those kinds of social connections are more and more important. And maybe others have said it, but I think this idea of social distancing is absolutely stupid. Physical distancing, that's smart, but you gotta be socially connecting in any kind of way you can. And I think, I mean, you talked about, I ran some of these big companies before. Yes, it was a great experience. But one of my lessons was, look, if you're gonna lead in China and you're a guaylo, uh, which is, uh, Chinese foreign devil, which is what they call anybody that's not Chinese. Um, uh, you have to speak the language. You, you have to not only speak the language, but you have to understand the culture and you have to have passion for the culture and you have to immerse into it. Right. But I think immersing and understanding different cultures and listening to other people's perspectives and not having, let's say if you come from the Netherlands, right, you think everything best in the world comes from the Netherlands uh, and everybody else should yeah. be imperialist bowing yeah. to you. Right. But it's no longer the 1600s, Dave. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is. <laughs> the mind of every Dutchman, it still is, Brent. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. But, you know, these days, I think you have to have empathy and understanding for different cultures around the world and what different people are going through. Um, and care about them. A uh, couple of lessons I learned from the military is you, if you really want to um, lead your troops, you better love them and you better really care about every single one of them, them as individuals. But I think the more we can do that now um, to care and have tolerance and understanding for each one of these different cultures around the world, the better off we're going to be. But, you know, I guess my short belief is social distancing is really stupid. Physical distancing is really smart right now to flatten the curve of the uh, expansion of this virus. But we need to do more social, socially connecting uh, with lots of tolerance, lots of understanding and lots of listening if we're going to, you know, get to any kind of new normal going forward. Yeah, I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit, too, about some of the practices that we're, I mean, because I think this is absolutely right. Part of the conversation that I had with some friends the other night at, at a socially distant dinner was that, a physically distant dinner, I should say, um, was, you know, yeah, look. are socially connecting, right? We're socially connecting. We're physically separated. And I think, so the thing that we were talking about was, I said, you know, because people are like, is it 30 days, is it 60 days, 90 days? And I said, you know. Look, until there's until we can test to see if you have the antibody or there's a vaccine, this is going to have to be the way people behave. It's the only option. Um, but I think more importantly, and there's there are antibody tests coming out that people are aggressively working on vaccines, so there is some hope. But my my comment was waiting for a new normal is a waste of time. I mean, people right now, and we've been doing this like crazy at our company. I mean, we're spending all, all weekend. I've been on Zoom calls and on Teams calls and on other, you know, other ways to connect with people. 
uh, hundreds of IPCs of our of our distributors at a time, our staff at you know at a time. You and I did I a call. They love it too, don't they, Dave? They need the leadership. They need the communication, and you know that's one of the key lessons I learned about leadership in crisis kinds of situations. You have to over communicate, right? Yeah. You know the what's. You know, I'm going to give you a quick test, Dave. What's the first? Uh, what's the first? I was told thing there was no that, math. Okay, <laughs> I'm smart enough not to know to get to know not to give you a math test, but. <laughs> um, but what would you say is the first thing people do in a crisis situation? So let's say you know in a military situation when bullets are flying. What's the first thing that humans do? What would be your guess? I think they tend to shut down shut down. They stop. They freeze, right? And in that context, your obstacle or your enemy can easily target you and overcome you. What would you say is the second thing they do? Flee. Exactly right. Um, they run. And they're, they're scared shitless. They don't know what to do. And they try to, it's like fight or, fight or flight, right? So they flight from the situation and they flee. The third thing they do is they lose complete focus. They don't know what to do. And so they do all sorts of stupid things. And in the military context, you put your head down in a foxhole, you put your gun over your head, and you shoot lots of birds and trees and leaves and air, and you waste all of your ammunition. And if you translate that to a business context, you waste all your time, you waste all your money, you waste all your resources on stupid stuff um, that isn't going to move the needle forward, that isn't going to drive your business forward, that isn't going to make a difference. The, and in any one of those three first scenarios that is typical human interaction um, your, your obstacle overcomes you. You waste all your ammunition or you get targeted or you run from the situation and the Sandinistas are on you before you know it, right? The only solution, the only successful model in any kind of crisis situation is a leader has to step up, kind of slow the entire picture down into slow motion and, and be calm in the face of enemy fire, in the face of insurmountable obstacles, in the face of very difficult situations, and you lead, guide, and direct. And you say, look, we're going to put down M60 suppression fire here. We're going to channel uh, platoon one uh, to do a flanking motion over here. I'm going to call an indirect fire over here, and I'm going to get you out of the situation alive. But you have got to step up as a leader in these kinds of situations because the, the, the normal reaction from, from people, from anybody, is those first three scenarios. And in any one of those three scenarios where you say, oh man, this is, this is a bad situation or this is hard or this is tough, those are all words that propagate a victim kind of mentality. And there is just no solution for you personally or anybody to work out of the situation if you propagate a victim mentality. You're just going to be you, you, you know, at the mercy of the situation around you. You have to fight back. Or in the case of the military, people die. In the case of the military, your troops die, and it's your job to protect their lives. I think our job in business is protect our shareholders and our peoples and everybody that counts on us to protect their livelihood. Uh, it's not lives necessarily on the line, but they've put their trust in us. They've put their investment in us. They've sometimes they've put their money in us. They put their belief in us. 
And you have no choice but to step up and lead in that kind of context because the the implications, if you don't, are, are one of those other three situ, situ, situations. And and you almost can't delegate. You almost have to direct in this kind of situation. You definitely can't abdicate. Uh, and I remember when I was in one of these kind of hairy situations first, the truth is I freaked also. I, I froze. And I uh, um, you, you kind of get that lump in your throat and you get that sphincter tension too. I had simultaneous esophageal and sphincter tension, just not a pretty picture. Uh, and I might've wet myself, which <laughs> I did, but you're, you're, you're scared shitless. And, and honestly, I'm nervous about this situation too, you know, for all of our people and all of our company. And not, not nervous, but concerned because I know what it takes to lead and get out of the situation. And it, it takes leadership. It takes focus. It takes concerted action. And you can't propagate a kind of victim or, you know, this is hard kind of situation mentality. It's a great opportunity if you step up and you lead and you guide through it, but you got to view it as an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, you know, that I was talking with, uh, Madonna Smith last night, who's, you know, introduced us. She works at Anonymous Content, a uh, major production company for film and, and advertising. But she introduced us to the uh, America's Food Fund. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Jose. You made a uh, donation there, didn't you, Dave? Uh, the company did, yeah. We made a donation, uh, both cash and product. Um, and, you know, they're, they're wanting to feed America because a lot of people are getting laid off. Times are tough. But one of the things we were talking about, um, you know, Lorraine Jobs was a, is a big donor to this as well. And Apple made a big contribution, Leonardo DiCaprio, Oprah, a lot of great people. And New Age. And, and New Age. And New Age. <laughs> um, but one of the things we were talking about was how Lorraine Jobs is very, you know, Steve Jobs' widow is very involved in a number of philanthropic activities. Um, and she's literally kicking off, you know, it wasn't anticipated that COVID was going to happen. She's literally kicking off these whole new programs to help people re-educate themselves to the new reality that was happening anyways. And one of the things we talked about was, you know, look, this is awful. This is a pandemic. No one wanted this to happen. I said, but thank God this isn't happening in 1975. I mean, right. look, we have the internet. We have all these tools like Zoom we're using right now. Um, you know, there are online business, thank God, Amazon and, and others, you know, Alibaba, et cetera, have started a transition of home delivery. Um, there are so many tools and ways for people to actually change their lives and participate in a new way in this economy. And, uh, you know, I think part of what, what we're doing, and this isn't to toot our own horn, but something that we were aggressively starting to do this year anyways, was make a hard shift from the old way of direct selling into... Uh, you know, which is, it's always peer to peer, but it doesn't have to be physically person to person. And I think a lot of the companies that are doing really well right now are starting to make those transitions, helping people use online meeting tools, virtual meeting tools, helping them to use e-commerce better, helping them to use social commerce better, social, social media. And it's not about selling or pushing something. It's about creating communities where we're all adding value to each other. And part of that value may be products and services that we offer, but that's all, that's a small part. Right. Dave, why did you, I mean, you have been socially centric for forever, right? I mean, you probably have as many followers as Shakita. 
Maybe not quite. <laughs> no, not that many. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've got a good, I've, I've got a very healthy social following, um, you know, based on my role in the world. Um, but I think you know, for for yeah, us well, early how, how on, did you do it and yeah. why did you do it? So why early on, back in two thousand, I think around two thousand, uh, it's probably around two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Um, we started to realize that my former business, when I you know I was a founder of one of the founders of Excess uh, Energy Drinks and Sports Nutrition. And we were working, you know, we were inside of the Amway business, um, which was a legacy direct selling company, you know, very nice company, very successful, but, you know, definitely a bit of a dinosaur in the industry um, in terms of behaviors, you know, because they have so, when, when something's a legacy company, when it has so much history, when it's 60 years old, neutral is over 80 years old, there's yeah. just, you know, it's hard to overcome the inertia of how things have always been done. And uh, so part of the reason that, you know, we were always exploring new ways of doing things. And part of the reason they bought us strategically was because we were helping them make a lot of those changes. But the, in, you know, so it's 2007, 2008, we made, started making heavy investments in Facebook, which was an early, obviously one of the early sites. And, um, and we had so much engagement from younger people who were already are, are on those. Are you still in MySpace or something like that, Dave? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bringing it back. Bringing it back. <laughs> Friend. <laughs> I'm the friendster. <laughs> no, but the, <laughs> um, I remember MySpace. I wasn't very active on it, but the, um, <laughs> but what, what was Facebook, it really turned a corner. And what we started realizing quickly was that, you know, first maybe half and 60 and 70, within a, within a year or two, 80, 90% of all of our communication was on social media. And what I realized was if you're doing a good job of creating content that's engaging for the audience you know it's not about me trying to push something or sell something or tell you something if we're creating uh content that's entertaining that's engaging that's helpful that adds value to people you just get a lot of interaction and sometimes it was controversial sometimes we pick a topic that maybe um you know an older legacy company like amway wasn't comfortable with yeah uh, i was told, I was for, for some of those things you did oh i got in a lot of trouble yeah over the years i was i was uh there, was a couple, there were a couple older distributors who I blocked for a while because all they did was complain about our posts. <laughs> I like to point out that means they're watching. But yeah. the, the other thing, the, the, the biggest thing that I, was, I kept pointing out in those days was, you know, look, if we do a post about caffeine and it gets controversial and some people don't like caffeine, some people do, that's okay. Um, part of what we did was set standards for how to have those discussions um, so that it was respectful even if you disagreed. And the second part I like to point out is when you get a thread that's like a mile long of people arguing about something, yeah. it means to give a that's shit. Engagement, it means right? they care. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And as long as you can manage it and learn and put guidelines on your page for, you know, what healthy debate is, it's actually a wonderful thing. And so well, we, we could probably talk about sex, drugs, rock and roll, or religion, so people are be interested and have a point of view on the topic. Then what do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean. I like to ask people about that. I think in our business, I've been really careful, you know, particularly in the, in the old days, I was always very careful to be respectful of different points of view. I mean, the great thing, you know, we're in 60 countries, Brent. The great thing about being in 60 countries is you learn really quickly that people have different points of view on religious traditions, how they speak, how they eat. Um, there's a lot of different social customs and norms that are different. But at the end of it, underneath it all, they're all made out of people and they all kind of want the same thing. They want healthy families. They want to be able to provide. They want to have safety um, and they want to enjoy their lives. And I think, you know, what we're offering, obviously, is to try and help people define that for themselves and then help them go get it.
But yeah, um, what, I love, yeah. what I love about this company and, and the fact that we're doing this together, um, I mean, you started off saying I'm your boss. I mean, that's the last thing I ever feel in many well, That's why I can blame you. Yeah, that's a good point, right? <laughs> Surrogate in that respect for, can you believe what that fucking guy did, right? Or he said, <laughs> uh, what an asshole, you know, good thing I'm here to save the day, right? So I'm not uh, that guy, yeah. I, I know your mode, dude. Um, but um, I never once have felt that way. And I just, I feel as if we work together and we don't necessarily divide and conquer, we align and conquer, right? So, um, we, and we, we bring different skill sets and we play off of each other. And, you know, for me, that's what, you know, leadership in this context is all about. It is not about command and control. It is about bringing people together for a common vision, uh, figuring out how to do all of those activities or split up all of the activities amongst everybody that's still aligned to that common vision and then just go pursue that directly. And that's what I love about this company is this is a company that is about, I mean, its whole purpose of in being created three years ago was to inspire and educate the planet to live healthy. Right. What a noble mission, right? What a, what a mission that everybody can, uh, I love it. I love that product too, right? I'm going to do a little product plug here since you're talking about living healthy. Cause I think, and you know, obviously we're not a cure for the COVID virus or pandemic, but everybody's focusing on so many different ways to protect themselves right now. What do you, maybe you can tell me, tell me about, I mean, look, we're washing our hands. We're social, we're physically distancing ourselves. We're sanitizing like crazy. Uh, we're trying to get more sleep. We're doing all these different things, but boosting immunity is something everyone's thinking about right now. Tell me about these two products, Brent. We've got Noni, Tahitian Noni juice, and we've got Cell Defense. How do these two things help people boost their immunity? Do I have to answer the question? Because I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to answer the question, Dave, because it's bigger than those two products. I promise I will. Okay. Yeah. I have to put it in context, right? Because when we say, you know, we sort of have a tagline called "Live Health New Age, Live Healthy." Right. Live healthy is for me. It was a trick, right? Because as a as a not very smart ex military guy, um, I always taught myself to remember things by using mnemonics and stuff like that. Cheers. and so healthy actually stands for something. The H is about hydration, okay? So it's drink water. What does the CDC say in terms of, I mean, Dave, you're an older uh, male, correct? Well, Brent, uh, it's all perspective and relative. <laughs> so, but I'm much, like a baby, but yeah. <laughs> older how than- much, what does the CDC say? How much water you're supposed to drink a day? Water, not beverages, water. Uh, the, uh, I believe, I, you know, good question. What does it say? I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to answer that correctly. A little bit more than a gallon of water a day, right? So um, I don't like drinking a gallon of water today because it tastes like water. Uh, and um, and uh, it makes me pee all day long if I drink a gallon of water every day. But I try to You don't to drink. drink it all at once, right? <laughs> no, I don't drink it all at once. But, okay, so that's the H, right? The E is eat and exercise. 
The A, so H-E-A, the A is accomplished through focus and planning. The L is love, be in the moment. And part of the reason we created that is because, you know, recognizing I was calling my mom like once every two or three months or, you know, when I'd go out to dinner with my wife, I'd take out, my, I'd take my mobile phone and I'd put it right on the table, bad move. Uh, so um, you got to be in the moment is what the L stands for. The T uh, is purposeful thoughts, right? focus, planning, meditation, mindfulness. And then the uh, H, health, is, uh, is heal um, through um, good sleep and, and, and relaxation. That's when your body uh, regenerates itself. And why is your way? Not, not, you know, we're not going to be heavy-handed, but it's just a model of how to live and, and live healthy. And that guides the overall company. So to answer your question, Dave, for me, that's the big picture and then I feel within there, we're just trying to live that model, right? And, it's, and, and when you say, look, if your mission is to inspire and educate the planet to live healthy, it's not about pushing products. It's not about people having more cell defense or more uh, Noni or, or more any of our products. We are not about that. We might sell those things and those things might pay the bills, but the company is about so much more than pushing those products like you were unabashedly just uh, flogging. Now, that being said, I love our products. Uh, and I love they, what they stand for because none of our products ever compromise. Um, they are all better for you than the alternatives. And we are lucky that two of our products in particular have particular immunity benefits. Uh, and I can say that with uh, scientific um, fact-based uh, 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 grit and substance behind it. And as a nuclear engineer, uh, which is my undergraduate degree, I'm a complete dork. Everything is about numbers. Everything is about statistics. Everything is about science. And everything is empirical and, and provable. And if I think about first the Noni uh, product, I mean, these Polynesians, where it comes from, uh, you know, they've been using it really as medicine and remedies for the past thousands of years, right? And, you know, some key, key people 20 plus years ago in the United States found this product and started to market it and have sold, believe it or not, of this Noni stuff, uh, $8 billion of Noni. And when we first bought the company, Dave, I mean, when my wife said, Brent, why the hell are you buying that? Noni's ever heard of it. Uh, and, and it's true. Noni's ever heard of it. It's the world's best kept secret in that respect. Shame on us because it shouldn't be the world's best kept secret if it's such a big business. I mean, lots of people have heard of Palm in the United States and those kinds of things. Dude, this has got like eight, 10 times the amount of antioxidants than Palm. And it has these proven studies that increase your, uh, your NK cells by 32%, or sorry, by 30%, your, your ILK2, uh, which is activates your NK cells by 32%. And, it, and, and those things- the Natural off. killer cells, right? That's what NK stands for? Natural they killer cells, right? These, yeah. yeah, these are the cells that kill, kill off virus. So if you wanna protect yourself from the inside, this is instead of wearing a mask that's not going to protect you from the outside 
side, um, this, this strengthens your baseline health. And I, that's why I drink that stuff. And my wife drinks it, believe it or not, I even gave it to my mother-in-law. So, uh, so, and who I really like, but, um, uh, you know, that's saying something, right? So it, it really, really helps. And on, and that's, that's one of the products, right? And that protects and improves improves your baseline immunity in one way but this other product is self-defense and or sorry cell defense and it was developed by the u.s government and my simple logic in acquiring that company a couple of years ago was look the world doesn't need another soft drink i mean i i just saw the coca-cola company launch their newest product you know what it is dave i do not cherry vanilla coke <laughs> well, and, and you used to work at Coca-Cola, correct? I mean, you were you were running a lot of Latin American business for them. Yeah. What do you? What, what's your point? Well, my point is that you actually <laughs> have in-depth knowledge about the Coca-Cola company and and what they're I, I do. Yeah. I, I do. Um, part of, but the, part I, of the organization. I was part of the problem, right? Because if you look at. Um, those products and 90% of the products that that company sells, we're not talking about Coca-Cola, but 90% of what the company sells is, I don't know, a, a better, more honest way to put it, but 90% of what they sell is diabetes in a can. And, and, and look, there's 400 million pre-diabetics in China and it's the processed food. Harder than the population of the United States. Yeah, no, it's true. But it's all the processed food and it's all the soft drinks that is propagating this stuff. And yeah, believe it or not, Dave, I was Coca-Cola's youngest president in like a hundred years. And at the time I was so proud. And today I'm just embarrassed because of the products they sell. And today to go launch Cherry Vanilla Coke with 69 grams of sugar per bottle 69 grams of sugar per bottle, I just find unconscionable. I mean, for me, it's it's the new big tobacco. Big soda is the new big tobacco, right? They just, there's just not enough, you know, impetus behind uh, like what there was to stop all the big cigarette uh, stuff. And, you know, um, lung cancer today is still, you know, the biggest preventable disease that we have out there because there's 6 million people uh, a year that die from tobacco related diseases, right? But guess how many people die from uh, diet related diseases, principally driven by hypertension, diabetes, uh, and uh, an overall bad diet. How many people would you say die a year from uh, from diet? More. You are correct, sir. You're passing the test, brah. <laughs> so um, 11 million people die a year from bad diet, right? And what are the penalties for the Coca-Cola company? What are the penalties for Pepsi? What are the penalties for the processed foods companies that are propagating this stuff out there there's none, right? They're just making money hand over fist and they control. I mean, you go into any hypermarket in the United States or Europe and you'll see 40 linear feet of carbonated soft drinks. It is a tsunami of, of sugar staring consumers in the face. And what are the penalties for that? None. So the, the, we created this company to make a difference against that, to right those wrongs, to, to not compromise and to put and bring healthy products out there. So yes, I am proud that 
in the every fiber of our being every every sinew of what makes us up we will not compromise we will pursue our passion to the death to inspire the planet to live healthy and we will only drive healthy products out there and we're lucky we have this noni product and this product we bought from the u.s government that increases your lymphocytes um that directly correlate to also killing viruses in your body look up lymphocytes l-y-m P-H-O-C-Y-T-E-S, lymphocytes. Uh, and those things uh, are, I think they, they increase the white blood cell count in your body to fight off cancer uh, and attack cancer cells and those kinds of things. But they also are your immunity cells, uh, uh, things that strengthen your immunity in your body. So those two products directly address those things um, in, in human trials. Guess what? Done by NASA, done by the U.S. government human trials, cooperative studies done with like Walter Reed. These things are proven. These things are patented. These things have the human trials on it and we can't get anybody to take notice of it. It just pisses me off, right? Because the products, they're not cures, they're not vaccines, but so what? They're not harmful, right? And that's the principal rule of HIPAA, do no harm, right? So uh, that, that is all medical uh, doctors uh, live by. So this is do no harm. This is strengthen your immunity with supplements. And even Dr. Oz has talked about um, you know, you can strengthen your immunity with supplements. So, you know, I know I'm talking about a lot of different subjects, but now you got me pissed off with. No, no, well, this is good. I mean, I think, you know, if you think about it, the, the, I think the premise is, you know, here's, here's the challenge. I think a lot of people struggle to understand, um, you know, medical doctors, the CDC, they're primarily driven by out the outcomes of studies on things that are very narrow. Like for example, the impact of a vaccine on a, on a disease, right? or the impact of a drug on a very specific disease. Or a disease, right? Yeah. Right. But the, in this case, there is no cure. All we're doing is treating symptoms. And so if you notice, I think everyone's noticed this, the government has been focused almost squarely on prevention. And that's an area where hospitals, doctors, nurses, the CDC, frankly, don't have a lot of, you know, that's, that's not their sweet spot. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, what's, what's interesting is, you know, we're limited on what we can say about, obviously, preventative supplementation uh, as it relates to a disease or a virus or, or whatnot. But I think most people realize right now, the best thing you can do is not get this. The best thing you can do is if you do get this, not have an inflammation response that kills you, you know, these cytokine storms people are talking about. And so you want to prepare your body to be as healthy as it can and, and fight back in the healthiest way possible so that you don't get caught in this, in this pandemic. And we're not a cure for it. We don't have the, you know, the, we're not the ultimate solution. But I think the thing that we do have, and this is, you know, like with the cell defense, and we won't do too many product plugs after this, but I think, you know, uh, one of our medical doctors on our board talked about the fact that you know, the cytokine storm is basically the body reacting to this virus and reacting so aggressively that it floods your lungs and kills you. Yeah. And when you take one of the ingredients... One of the insights out there, Dave, that hardly anybody knows about, that they're seeing a big correlation in these cytokine storms that are happening in people's bodies as it relates to, to, to COVID, right? And, and some of the ingredients 
in our in our patented cell defense product protect against that cytokine storm from happening. So again, we didn't develop this for this particular illness. We didn't develop it for any particular illness. We developed it for basic strengthening of immunity, which is why they used to give it to the military and why, you know, it was developed by the military. For and battlefield conditions, right? For people trying to recover right. from battlefield stress. Um, in fact, we donated 6,000 bottles of Tahitian noni juice to frontline workers in China when this started in, in January and February. Um, obviously, we've been donating. We're just out donating now to America's Food Fund, um, which is, you know, Chef Jose Andres. And we're working, of course, with uh, Skylab. We just, I just this morning, you know, we, what's great about getting involved in these things is other people start reaching out to you. Skylab, who's our partner, Skylab Apps, and developing some of our gamification tools for modifying behaviors, just got approached by AWS, you know, Am uh, Amazon Web Services and the U.S. government, the CDC, to build a behavior modification app to help people do their part. It's hashtag do your part. Um, and uh, and awesome. they're going to be Im implementing, you know, recognizing, rewarding people for washing hands, practicing better hygiene, eating well you know, spending time with their family, talking about their feelings, all the things that we need to be doing right now. And they asked if we would join them, one, to share those behaviors on our app that we're doing, which of course I said, yes, that's part of our, that's part of our values. It's part of who we are. We, we want to live healthy together with people. Um, but secondarily, and inspire and educate people to live healthy. But I said, secondarily, you know, if we can help, I don't want to push product. I'm not trying to sell product, but if we can help donate product, to people who are at risk, who are fighting this, who are putting their lives on the line, you know, we're very happy to do that. And you and I are having this conversation, you know, um, this isn't, we're not trying to be self-promotional about it, but I've told every one of them, look, we're not going to put out press releases about this. You and I can include we're it. We're not here for the credit. We're not here for the clapping hands. We're here to make a difference. But we're really, really happy to make a difference. So. Tell us about, so, so, I mean, I think this is really helpful to a lot of people. I've had a lot of people reach out from some of the social media videos asking how to get product, um, how they can maybe be a part of our team because people are worried about their finances. Um, you know, when you think about people's financial futures, the financial future of uh, Noni by New Age, you know, the New Age group, um, there's, I, I think, you know, we've, we've had, we're moving fast. We're pivoting quickly and we have been even before this thing happened. Um, but help, help put in perspective some of the changes that we've been going through, because I think it's sometimes you can see a bunch of changes that are happening. Um, you know, particularly people that work with us, our distributors or maybe staff and get confused. Uh, we just, have, did furloughed some employees in the United States. We, uh, we've discontinued a number of low performing SKUs. Um, we've made some changes in the company. We've also just launched a completely new social platform. We're launching new mobile apps. Um, we're empowering, we're spending we're more money on in key markets around the world too, right? So we're investing in key places too. So, so I think the question that people have is, are we, you know, sometimes they see layoffs or they see furloughs and they're like, oh, the company's going out of business. Is the company in trouble? Or they see that with skewed discontinuances and maybe get, think that things are bad at New Age. How's the health of the company and why do we make those changes? Um, well, you make those changes because you have a responsibility to shareholders and you have a responsibility to all of the people you serve 
and you are continually making changes. You make the changes every single day, just like you said, Dave. I mean, you know, you're pivoting all of the time. And the key is to do that as, as fast as possible. Now, in the military, that's called maneuvering on the battlefield. Right? You have to maneuver. You can't just go into battle with a simple plan and assume it's all going to go according to plan because the minute you're in the battle and the bullets fly, if you're not maneuvering, you're dead, right? So this is called maneuvering and that's all it is. And you've got to be nimble and you have to be fast and you have to maneuver on the battlefield. So um, if there, I don't know of a single company worldwide that isn't, um, and I've talked to maybe 50 CEOs in the past couple of weeks or and, and months of what actions they're taking, but they're all um, minimizing longer term investments and focusing on shorter term return on investment activities. Um, as they minimize their long, those longer term investments, they take money that was allocated to those activities and they put those against the shorter term return on investment activities. Uh, and they double down on those things that are working and eliminate those things that aren't. So this is natural, logical for me, maneuver on the battlefield. It's just put in this context that is really uh, extra sensitive and exacerbated now and people get nervous and so they say stupid shit like oh well what's the health of new age or whatever i mean this company has never been stronger we have one class of shares as a small cap company i don't know a single other small cap company that has one class of shares common what does that stock. Mean? can you explain that it means uh one share equals one vote right so it is the fairest thing for so you don't have preferred shares for certain investors and common shares for people who don't matter i mean you've got one it's just the most democratic Bullshit. version of it right yeah it's, it's it's fair it's fair for the little guy that can't speak up for themselves right so in this kind of context it is the fairest for the smallest individual shareholder that has one share right because it, when you're running these big public companies you can do all of these jiggery pokery things like warrants, like preferred shares, like different classes of shares and those kinds of things. And those are all ways that give you more control, but at the same time, it, it potentially hurts the small individual shareholder and that's just not fair. So what's great about this company is we have one class of shares. We've got maybe on a $300 million company, $10 million of debt. It's nothing. Yeah. You got $60 million of cash. You've got 300 plus million dollars of assets. So from a balance sheet standpoint, from a cash standpoint, uh, and from a, a, a capital market structure standpoint, it doesn't get any cleaner, any better. And it's really characteristic of a, a multi-billion dollar multinational in terms of the kind of structure we have. What that translates to is two things. One, it translates to, look, this is a very investable asset. And that's why our top five shareholders are like BlackRock, JP Morgan, Prudential, Bank of New York Mellon, Raymond James, those kinds of shareholders. It's really, really smart money. 
And at the same time, we have a lot of individual shareholders that, that provide liquidity. That's a benefit, but they also, you know, blow with the wind and shorters and all of those kinds of things in there. So it's yeah, yeah. yeah, day traders and it just doesn't help our stock. So ultimately as we go forward, we get a bigger percentage of those institutional holders, but you've got a pretty good institutional holding base. You got the right capital market structure and you have the right balance sheet that translates to two things. One, it translates to financial flexibility as for you as a company in terms of driving the business. And the second thing, as I mentioned, it translates to, into having an investable asset, right? Um, and honestly, I've made some mistakes before as I was learning from InBev and you know my own little private company, some of which we tried to take public and stuff. Boy, in making some of those mistakes, we now have the benefit of those mistakes I made before because we just haven't made them here. We really have it right. We've been really disciplined to, to have this um, structure like we have such that it's investable for the future for all investors uh, and you have all of this pretty strong financial flexibility. So you have that and, 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 and in this kind of context, look, you have to be prudent for what might happen in the future. So in, in, in prudence means you need to be as tight on headcount as possible. You need to be as tight on expenses as possible. You need to reallocate against those short-term activities that are gonna make the biggest difference and minimize investment against the secondary uh, uh, efforts. So we're just, the big context is we're doing all of those things, but at the same time, we're investing. I mean, you're a perfect example. You, Julie, Glenn, other key leaders in marketing, um, investments in Centurion program to put $20 million in the hands of the field, investments in new products, Tamanish Shape, uh, enhanced cell defense, more drive behind core brands like Noni, uh, launch of Noni plus CBD. So we're launching all of these new products that are cool, hot, current, on trend, and eliminating these things that just don't make sense. I mean, we're not in the lipstick business. So yeah, um, it doesn't stand with for living healthy. Uh, you got to have all sorts of colors and all sorts of SKUs. I mean, of course we're not, we're going to get rid of those damn SKUs because I like them. They're creamy. They got noni in them, but it just doesn't fit with us anymore. Right. And it costs us a lot of money and it just, it's, it's, it's cash just sitting there. So, you know, the big picture is we're just maneuvering on the battlefield to position us for even greater success going forward. And let me tell you, dude, you, any IPC, any board member, any shareholder, nobody is getting in my way to doing what we have to do to be successful. But guess what? We're all going to get there together, right? Um, if you are, there's a difference between a leader and a hiker. A hiker gets to the top of the mountain uh, and he looks down and he's there by himself. He's hiked up to the top. A leader takes everybody with them. And even if I have to do it, I'll carry you on my back, but you are coming with me and we're going to the top and we're going to take all 300,000 IPCs with us, not just in terms of wealth creation, but in terms of living our life, living our passion, living our dream, living what this company is all about. We're, we're taking everybody with us, whether they want to come or not. So the, no, I think that's amazing. So the, you know, you think now about- Now you're getting me fired up. Now you're getting me motivated, Dave. <laughs> So, so let's put this in a little bit specific context. How old is New Age Beverages and how fast is it going? Like when did it start? How big was it and where is it today? 
So the company started in June of 2016. And it started with one small brand actually in April of 2016 when I started. So about three and a half years ago. Uh, and at that time, it was $2 million in revenue. It was one brand, 16% gross margin, I, which means you're not making money. One customer, that one product had 34 different ingredients, including things like mango paste from the Magdalena River in Colombia. So you couldn't make the what shit. Was the, what was the product? Uh, it was a uh, bucha kombucha, right? It was a great tasting kombucha. It was fantastic we'll have that product today. Yeah. Oh, I love that product. Right. But, um, uh, uh, you can't, you couldn't make it. You, you mean, and, and you couldn't make any money off of it. Right. So the company was losing 4.1 million a year. Uh, and it was losing twice as much money as it was making. <laughs> yeah. And, and it had four employees. Right. So, and I, I went to my wife and I said, uh, I'm going to take it over. And what do you, <laughs> what do you what think she said? say about that? She said, uh, she said, no. <laughs> you know, my wife has her own company and you know, family company and, you know, she's really strong uh, and strong willed business person, but super, super smart. And so she just said, no. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? No. Uh, and I, and, and she says, no, she says, you've taken $10 million of my money and you haven't generated the return that you promised that you would. So what would Dave, if uh, Sarah came to you and said, you've taken $10 million of my money and you haven't generated the return that you promised you said you would, what would, what, what do you do? What do you say? Hold on. She's right here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that's the French, my favorite note is the French one. It's the hand doesn't move, just the finger. No. Oh no. Oh no. No. And my wife is my uh, Corinne's uh, six foot tall, and so she when she takes out the finger and she waggles the finger, you know you're <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in deep shit. Deep shit. Oh, man. But you apparently you did it anyways. But well, let me, no, you're not going to evade the question. If Sarah said to you, no, what would you do? What, what, how would you respond? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, here's, here's a little bit of a story, but you know, I used to try and not tell Sarah about investments I wanted to make that I thought she would do that on. Cause I thought, you know, I'm smarter than my wife. I'm going to come up with this. It's going to work. I can, you know, the force of David will make it happen. And uh, after getting burned a few times, making those dumb decisions, I, uh, I, I, whenever I get this feeling like I don't want to tell Sarah about this investment because she's going to say, you know, no, then uh, <laughs> that's when I actually do talk to her about it and we come to a joint agreement. But uh, yeah, so if Sarah told me no, definitely not, or fuck no, or some version of that, she doesn't say fuck, but if some version of that, then uh, I would... Uh, I would struggle with the decision. Let's just say, <laughs> what did you yeah. do, Brent? Well, uh, have you ever been in a hole with your wife and you <laughs> dug it deeper? <laughs> Another thing I've learned over the years, when you're in a hole with your wife, stop digging. doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, can you know, Corinne said, you've taken $10 million of my money and you haven't given given me the the return that you promised. And I'm sure it was like 8%, but I've said, look, I'll get you double digits. So, you know, I said, 
the exact wrong thing. And I said, well, I thought it was my damn money. And that's where the finger came out. And she oh, goes, man. Here's where you're wrong again. <laughs> so You're lucky if you only got one finger and you didn't get the whole hand. You know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. So we did it anyway, right? And, and we did it because we had the vision. We did the math, right? And the math was simple. We said, number one, consumers are trending towards health and wellness around the world. This was the first piece of the math that led to how do you go into this? How do you go into and take over a company and, and risk your reputation in something that is obviously completely broken with no hope, right? I, like I talked about, four employees, 16% margin, one customer losing money, um, can't make the product. Why would you ever go do that, right? What do you see that others don't see that others couldn't do? But here's what I saw. I just did the analytics. I just did the math. And the first part of the math was... Um, consumers were trending towards health and wellness around the world and their purchase behavior was starting to change where they weren't just talking about it they were actually doing it in terms of purchase behavior uh, and I did the math and I saw that in the past five years at least in the beverage industry 200% of the growth had been driven by smaller brands at the expense of Kraft, Nestle, Coke, and so it was the smaller brands growing and that led me to the second piece of the math that the retailers uh, were actually open to working with smaller brands and no longer just the dominance that uh, from the Cokes and Pepsis of the Nestle's because they pay these huge what's called cooperative marketing agreements that control the entire shelf space um, and that's how they maintain these 40 feet sections. Uh, the tobacco companies do the same thing. They're they maintain all of the sections, right? But isn't, isn't aren't like Pepsi and Coke, I mean, the big companies, they're actually doing the planning. They're the, they actually do it planning the planning. Yeah, they do it all. They control it all. Uh, and they deliver it all. And they, they do just like what I did in Latin America. They, you know, they get rid of all the, uh, the competitors' products. We used to break Pepsi's glass so they wouldn't be able to come back uh, um, against us in a returnable glass bottle system, right? You do what you have to do to, um, to, uh, to win. Uh, and, and that's what those big companies do. So, but retailers were starting to make the change. And guess what? That part of the math on the retailer impetus for change is, number one, 80% of their traditional categories were declining. Beer, carbonated soft drinks, tobacco, uh, and in the case of, of um, convenience stores, gas. Those four categories make up 80% of a convenience store's revenue. And if 80% of that revenue is declining, boy, you, you ought to be diversifying really, really quick. Right. That was one. Um, so the retailers had to change and they were getting channel disintermediation at the same time from Amazon and others. And their model, in terms of all the labor, all their costs was the same as it always was really for the past 40 or 50 years. So they needed new products that were higher margin um, and on consumers' trends. So that was the second piece of the math. Retailers had to change. And the third piece of math that we saw was, uh, I knew from, the, um, from working with Coke and Pepsi before, and big beverage companies is um, those companies have to defend Coca-Cola. Uh, 
they ha- and Pepsi-Cola. They have to defend their big core businesses because it's what carries all of the infrastructure and pays for all their trucks and their bottling, bottling networks and all of those kinds of things. And if those things drop down bes- below a certain level, nothing else has the same level of turns and same level of profitability as those brands. So the minute those things drop below a certain level, you all of a sudden you have these albatrosses of infrastructures instead of benefits of infrastructures. So that was the third piece of the math that said, look, that's not going to get better for them. They can't go student body left to healthy products. They're going to continue to do things like orange vanilla Coke and cherry vanilla Coke and those kinds of things because they have to. Um, uh, retailers are going to change around the world and, and, and consumers and health and wellness is going to be more and more important. So that was the whole impetus for creating the company. Even with this tiny little kernel of a product, it was just a starting point. And then we just pulled together the vision and my simple view is you can do anything you want to do. You just put your mind to it, put a stake in the ground and, you know, uh, somehow in that process, you know, we've become the fastest growing beverage company. I think we're up like 10,000% in the past three years. We're the number one growing stock since, you know, from 19 cents on the OTC to, you know, even, um, you know, between a dollar and two dollars that still puts you at one of the the best growing stocks um over the past three years and we've been you know and we'll get back there again here shortly i believe with what we're doing but um uh you're still one of the best growing stocks in this context and you're you're one of the fastest growing companies and it's it's just because we're you're doing what you say you're going to do. You put a stake in the ground. You've hit those milestones, and now we're, we've got a new actual roadmap for the next three years, Dave. That you, you were actually a part of developing, and I'm pretty stoked about where we're headed because we ain't stopping until we're a multi-billion-dollar multinational. And it's not about the size at all. Is it about you know, doing well by doing good, right? That's what we're all about. And as long as we stay true to that and execute our business plan, you know, nothing's going to stop us, right? So, we, um, so we, a lot of the growth over the last three years was largely through acquisitions, right? I mean, we acquired companies that fit that model and helped us get to the next stage in our in our development. Some, yeah, yeah, some was some through acquisitions, some through organic growth, um, uh, and and in that process we got the scale and now we're relooking at some of those things of in that new roadmap of you know do you want to make changes in what's worked and what hasn't worked and what do you want to get rid of too so you know that's part of maneuvering on the battlefield which is sort of where we are now too yeah i mean i was going to say when i you know prior to coming in when we've been looking at all this together i think a big part of the conversation this was last year was that um, these acquisitions are wonderful and it's great to get the scale and the growth and the, and the organic growth that comes with synergies that we build into it. But uh, another part of that is, you know, you kind of have to trim and prune like any healthy plan, any healthy organism so that it can grow in the direction you want it to grow. Right. Otherwise you're just going to have a, a, a wild jungle. And, um, exactly right. and so what, what, even though this happened at kind of a strange time with, with the COVID virus, I mean, a lot of what we just went through, is something we've been planning to do uh, regardless of the pandemic. Is that right? For, for six months, right? So okay. I'm going to give you just a little bit of um, an analogy, Dave. 
but then I want to turn the table back on you because you knew these things coming in, right? And you have to have trust and confidence that we're all going to do it or you're going to be in a position to do these right things, right? But I once, um, I once took over as the number two at a small little beer company in Belgium. Nobody had ever heard Sorry, of it. Sorry, I meant to ask you this. Yeah, please. Yeah, nobody had ever heard of it, right? I mean, it, it's good beer, right? Not like that crap that they brew in the Netherlands. Um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, if you think of Heineken and Amstel, Stella's, it's just behind, you know, like everything Belgian, it's just a few steps behind the, the great country of the Netherlands. Good point. Um, uh, which I'm going to um, argue with you with some facts and figures and growth rates uh, coming up coming up here. But um, fair enough. Uh, so, um, but I took over this little company that for six since 1366 nobody had ever heard of, right? Uh, and they say, okay, Mr. Hotshot, West Point guy, Mr. Chicago, MBA, blah, 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 blah. Let's see what you can do. Uh, and all my board members were like aristocrats, like, and then, and they all had counts in front of their names and Viscounts. And I didn't even know the difference in those kinds of things. And they just, their families that owned this since 1366 and, you know, older gentlemen on the board, like Mr. I know that I think he used to run Renault and all those kinds of these French old school European stuff. And, you know, and here then comes in this American, right? Even though I'd grown up in Europe, I was still one of five Americans in the company and 99 of my top 100 reports were Belgians and their average age was like 50. Yeah. Uh, so fairly young. Fairly young compared to me. Uh, but, they worked 35 hours a week by law, right? And I'm like, what the hell? And, and my head of innovation, the day I started said, um, well, we get eight weeks of vacation a year, so I'm just gonna go off to Germany. The day I started, he says, I'm gonna go off to Germany for the next eight weeks and I wanna go learn a language. And I'm like, this is the head of the innovation. I'm like, well, don't come back, dude, because I'm done with you. So um, nobody had ever fired anybody from this company, but, you know, so that's the, the, what we had taken over. And we were in a bunch of uh, Central and Eastern European markets and a few Western European markets uh, and Belgium, of course. Uh, and we were losing share in 17 of the 19 markets in which we operated. And it was, a, you know, maybe top 20 in the world or top 30 in the world. And, and, uh, Three years later, we were the world's largest beer company from nothing, from air, because we said, look, here's what we're going to go do. Here's how we're going to do it. And we just did it. And we took a brand that nobody had ever heard of called Stella Artois. And I took the Heineken model and I said, look, there's a $10 billion source of revenue there. I'm going to eat these Dutch pussies for lunch. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, and um, we just went after their source of revenue and we, and we, tried to develop a better Heineken. We put some French advertising behind it. We put a sexy label behind it. And we just went after their jugular point by point, uh, market by market and launched Stella Artois around the world with this, you know, beer of supreme worth uh, and quality positioning 
from what was originally a farmer's beer in Belgium that was the number three beer in Belgium that the board said, just kill. Uh, just just don't do it. And I said, no, number three beer in Belgium. <laughs> That's number three beer in Belgium. And it was a farmer's beer in Belgium. And I said, no, I'm going to go kill Heineken with it. Uh, and we did. Uh, so, um, uh, so. Um, you ended up buying Anheuser-Busch out of, through that process, correct? Well, we did in because the long-term part of the strategy on that roadmap was we knew we wanted to access, we knew we wanted to win in China and we knew we wanted to win in North America. We already had a 70% share of the continent in Latin America. So we're producing at about 3 billion of free cash flow out of, uh, of Latin America. And, you know, we had a chance to buy, for example, a big business in Colombia, but it would have been putting $8 billion into Colombia. So what we did was we just raised the price. So our competitors dumped $8 billion into Colombia. So they had less money to deploy against the global strategy we were doing. So at the same time, we were doing military ruses to convince our enemies to waste their money on stupid little things, like in that kind of context, uh, uh, putting their money in, into, uh, into Colombia. So they had less to do elsewhere but ultimately we knew the strategy was we had to win in the united states and so we just waited for two things um uh one the um we waited for the euro to get to 160 to the dollar we waited to all of for our model to work to get all the cash flow generation from around the world to get our cash balance right and we waited to um, for ab to get depressed and they were stuck in a price war against miller at the time and so they got depressed we um, got to where we needed to be. And then we went and we stole the hearts and minds of all their distributors by getting them to distribute Stella. And this is before craft beer became cool in the United States. So it was that original uh, product that got them margins against this um, price war there. And then behind the scenes, we got Warren Buffett to work with um, uh, who, at the time owned like 15% of Anheuser-Busch who was friends with uh, one of my friends and one of my board members. And we got him to work the soft underbelly of uh, Anheuser-Busch to be able to take down that icon, that and $55 billion got the deal done. Uh, so, um, but it's, it's just all part of the roadmap, right? It's part of the roadmap to get to where you need to get. And ultimately that company in two years went from 2 billion to a hundred billion. So, you know, we've gone from 2 million to 300 million, but you know, we're just in the middle of not even in the middle, we're in the first inning of the roadmap and you know, you got to put these pieces in place. But the point, that I wanted to get to in terms of pruning and sorry, it's taken me 10 minutes to get there, but, oh, but it's, it's, good. it's helpful. You know, yeah. as, as, we, as we got these big strategic pieces, we wanted China, Latin America um, and, and different beers and brands we wanted. We then said, look, we need to prune all of this original stuff we had, which was Central and Eastern Europe, which had less pricing, uh, pricing uh, power, had less brand strength, had less growth potential, had less monetization potential. It was just too small versus you know, United States, China, India, and the other markets. And so we sold those off to the weakest competitor we could think of, which was Coors. And so we just sold that that those little things off that end up being just distractions. And so we're in that exact same point now. We're now selling off some of the little things, some of the initial brands that we started with, whether it's Coca Libre or whatever, um, because it's, 
it just doesn't make sense to put investment behind those things anymore. And by stopping investment in those things, we can put more money behind our IPC network. We could put more money behind social and digital. We can, we can open up Brazil. We can open up Southern Cone of Africa. We can invest in the key growth areas and launch new key products within this company because we're not going to put a penny behind, um, you know, Coco Libre, for example, um, that is just, you know, just too expensive to invest in, right? So it's, it's just natural course of business. We did the exact same thing at InBev as part of that roadmap. And we got rid of what was 100% of the company basically when I started, which is mostly all these central European markets. Um, um, uh, because you get bigger, better opportunities and you put the resources and, and good quality people behind it. So one of the logics for me of why I bought this company called Ambev down in Brazil is they have all these crazy studly, you know, street fighting Brazilians that I could put around the world and infiltrate around the world um, in terms of those human resources with the training and the experience and the ability to go make a difference, right? Because I knew I wasn't going to take these 50 year old Belgians and put them around the world because it wouldn't be a successful model. So, Dave, you in this kind of context are my street fighting favela Brazilian, my same kind of logic to say, look, you know, here is somebody with the experience and the knowledge and the street fighting abilities to go drive this thing around the world. So, you know, for me, it's, it's not an exact replica of the previous model, but you know, you are that equivalent for me. And I think, you know, you've got all of the, skill set, knowledge, and abilities, especially with this industry, which is fantastic right now and fantastic going forward to, to, to drive it. And I'm sure when you were looking at, do I really want to be part of this smaller enterprise <laughs> that had to enter into your mind? You didn't know that I had already done this before with Brazilians and that you were just going to, you were the next reincarnate of, uh, of Ronaldo. It's, you know, it's, it's what we call uh, <laughs> Aranya Mechanica, it's, you know, total football. It's the greatest uh, football team on earth, the Dutch, you know, which I think <laughs> we can all universally agree on. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, you know, and, but, you know, using that analogy, I mean, I think the, the great thing about what Johan Cruyff built in the Netherlands, then built again in Barcelona was this whole idea. That Nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. If you talk about Ronaldo, <laughs> I mean, those guys in Brazil, yeah. But Everyone knows that the Dutch have one of the great national football teams and that it's only maybe seconded by the, the, the chapel that Johan Cruyff built in Barcelona. <laughs> but the, <laughs> the chapel, the total football, tiki-taka. But no, but I think the idea is that, you know, what, what, what he kind of changed in the sport was this older hierarchical way of playing where, you know, a defenseman was a defenseman, a midfielder was a midfielder, and a forward or striker was a forward or striker. And he said, you know, an attack can start from any place in the field because we are going to play this game across the whole field, not just looking at components and pieces and parts. And it became this, this – uh, it all became about short-sighted play, about taking control of the game, taking control of the ball, making space, opening space, seeing the thing that wasn't there rather than looking at the thing that's at your feet and, and redirecting the entire field of play. And I think that's, that's a good metaphor for what we are doing right now. You know, the, uh, the funny thing that you brought up was, you know, look, I was, I was a, I helped found excess. We grew that business with no income, with no or no investment, you know, from 2002 with Amway through with at the time they bought us 2015 to over $150 million. 
And then I ran it for them for, for three years, stayed on for, you know, five to help them manage it. Transition. Right. We got more it to than triple. Yeah, we got it to half a billion dollars, more than triple the business. And I think the, you know, look, that was a great journey. I'm really grateful for that. But the thing that, you know, I get restless and um, I believe that we really have to live our lives deliberately and intentionally and that just showing up isn't a great way to live your life because I think life is far too short. And so I, you know, look, I've made plenty of mistakes in my life. It has not always gone flawlessly, but I think you have to try things. My uncle, Jay Van Andel, who was a co one of the co-founders of Amway, you know, he and Rich were entrepreneurs. They would try all kinds of risky things. And I think the company has lost a lot of that ethos. But, you know, what Jay used to say all the time was just try, you know, just, just try this. It's okay. You might fail. It might not work. Let's not fail at the same thing twice in a row, but let's try some new things and let's try and push the envelope. And I think right now, you know, there's never been a better time to just try. And I'm so thankful that, you know, as we were, you know, Roth and RX3, where I'm on the, on the board um, with Aaron Rodgers and Byron Roth and Nate Robbie, uh, Byron had helped you raise some money last year, quite a bit of money. And um, we had had some conversations. Greg Clark, who used to work at Amway, introduced us as well separately. And it's funny, you know, I wasn't really interested in looking at doing something in another direct selling company. Um, yeah, certainly wasn't. Good thing we're at a direct selling company, Dave. We're an omni-channel company out to change the world. And that's what caught my attention. I think when we got together in Utah and, and had uh, our first initial conversation with some of the top leaders, some of our top distributors or what we call IPCs, you know, the thing that struck me was you were offering equity and the company's public. So it's actually, you know, it's, it's tradable, it's shareable, it's valuable you're offering equity to the top leaders who are willing to go way out of their way to help grow the business still are. Um, and, and you were, you were already building the foundation of an omni-channel business, not just multi-channel where you're in different channels, but an integrated multi-channel business called an omni-channel business where you can take advantage of, you know, direct to consumer selling via e-commerce, direct selling businesses like, like uh, Mirinda or Amway and also traditional retail and DSD. And, and integrating those things together is really what every company that we're investing in with RX3 you know, um, is doing. We're looking at emerging brands and look, yes, you need to be in traditional retail, uh, but to your point, you know, it's broken um, and you don't wanna have all your bets there. What we're always looking at is, you know, if it's like, let's say it's Orgain or it's Kidu, you know, Super Coffee. Uh, I did a podcast with those guys this week. Um, you know, these are brands that are growing. In. We distribute both Orgain and Super Coffee. Exactly. Uh, and we're just crushing it for those guys, They're right? So loading. Yeah. And, you know, um, the, the thing that strikes me about, you know, what you were putting in place and the way you were sharing equity with your top leaders, you know, a lot of people in direct selling like to talk about how they own a business because they, they have a, you know, a, a, a distributorship affiliated with the company. But what they find out uh, you know, in a lot of places is they really don't own anything. They kind of just got self-employed, you know, and um, putting that level of what I, I love the term you used unfuckability into it where, you know, this is yours. You own this. We can't take this from you. We can't fire you. We can't take your distributorship away uh, equity. That's a big game changer in the industry. And I think it's really profound. And that struck me as something very, very powerful. 
But, but the other thing was, you know, as we were building excess and doing so much on social with social selling and social commerce early, and because people just love the product, I mean, you know, in 2001, when we created it, and then 2002, when we really built up the brand, you know, the whole premise was, look, sugar is the new cigarettes. I mean, I was sitting in the room with Tommy Thompson, who was the Secretary of Health and Human Services at the time, when he did the press conference with Lynn Swan, and, and basically said, you know, look, sugar is the new cigarettes, obesity and diabetes have become the number one preventable cause of disease and death in America. And the only way we're going to change this is largely if we change what we're putting in our mouth. You know, can't it's just it's be sugar bombs all day long. It's going to be fixed through diet, but right. it just, it still pisses me off that those guys are still allowed to propagate what they have unencumbered, unfettered, and without any controls or, or any, um, uh, any penalties. And the, the best penalty is if consumers just stop drinking that stuff and they start drinking healthy or eating healthy, those kinds of things, that's the best penalty if they get hurt on the profit lines, but you know, they shouldn't be allowed to continue, but you know, the best, the best medicine for them is, is consumers making healthy eating and drinking choices. And, and we had started, you know, with energy drinks when that was a hot category, still a good category, but it was super hot back then. And we were doing we were the first sugar free, first ones to do flavors. So they actually tasted good because people don't like it and it's good for you. Good luck. Um, and we started using mega doses of B vitamins to change that experience. But I think the idea was, you know, how do we help people make incremental steps towards a much healthier set of choices? Not by creating new habits, because that's really hard to do, but by replacing products in people's habits that they already have. And so we started getting pulled into retail. We started getting pulled onto social commerce and all those things, you know, at a legacy company like Amway were illegal uh, because they were had this idea that you had to protect your, 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 your uh, you, you had to protect these distributors. But if you look at successful brands today, you know, it's all about what, what everyone's discovered. I think Ralph Lauren has one of the best stories about this. You know, he started out selling in Bloomingdale's they gave him a little store within a store. No one had ever had that before. And, you know, he built the big brand out of it. He started segmenting into like purple and polo and chaps so that people could buy it at different places and still participate in his brand. One of the, I think one of the biggest moves he ever made, one of the scariest things he ever did was he, he bought this big mansion blocks away from Bloomingdale's and converted it into like their biggest flagship yeah, store. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and everybody said to him, what are you doing? You're crazy. You're going to kill your core business over at Bloomingdale's. You're, you know, this is your, the soul of your business. You're going to kill that if you put this massive flagship over here, you know, blocks away. And he, and he said to this, he goes, this isn't going to kill my business at Bloomingdale's. It's going to double it. And he realized that the more places for customers to find and identify and see his products and use them, the more people would just consume them overall. And it literally did double his Bloomingdale's business. It quadrupled his, I mean, you know, and I, and I think that premise, we've seen that with, with excess at Amway. We saw that every time we opened up a channel, we had some, you know, some, we managed the pricing so that it was similar so we weren't undercutting somebody. Every time we opened up another channel, all it did was create more awareness so that when one of our distributors actually did have a conversation, it wasn't about some weird product they'd never heard or seen before. And it wasn't about trying to convince somebody that they needed something. It was somebody saying, Oh yeah, I saw that over here. I'd love to get it from you. I'd love your service. I'd love to actually get it at maybe a better price or maybe you can help me help deliver it to my home, whatever those benefits are. But it just, just expanded the brand. 
you know, I kept asking our distributors when they would complain, oh, I saw it in a bar, I saw it in this gym, I saw it. In... And I'd say, well, let me ask you, did, have you lost a customer because of it? And they said, well, no. I said, well, if you're really worried about it, why don't you stand outside the door of that place and offer people case discounts if they bought from you? You know, because nobody gets paid to police, we get paid to find out how to expand. We don't get paid to state the problem, we get paid to find solutions. And so when, when I saw what you, what you, the foundation of what you had created, I really don't, you know, my theory is, you know, was it, was everything perfect? No, of course not. You know, you've done a lot of acquisitions. There's a lot of cleanup that needs to happen. We're going through that process right now. I think we're largely through it. We have a couple more things to do, yeah. but, but you know, we're, we're that part we're, we're moving through quickly. What I loved was that we had the, with the vision to do that. So there was like this momentum to do it. You're moving at light speed compared to, you know, most of the places I've worked. Um, there was no legacy. This is all new. And we just want to transform a boogie. And yeah. the most frustrating thing to me, and you know, it's been exacerbated with COVID, is being stuck in a large organization where you can't affect change. When I had my own small company, I could make the decisions, it was awesome. When you're in a big legacy business and you've got 50 levels of hierarchy and 30 committees trying to figure out what to do, you die. And uh, what I love about can, what can we're I doing make, right now. Can I make a confession to you, Dave? Yes. When I was doing my due diligence on you, uh, if I wanted to work with you and partner with you and have you come in. Still surprised included, you invited me in. <laughs> you know, rethinking it every day, right? But, uh, uh, and I do like Sarah more than you, by the way, but. Um, that's, that's, a common, that's a common theme. Um, even going back and looking and evaluating you know what you did in high school and talking to some people that knew you in high school like, like um, congressman bill heisinger <laughs> yes um who had a mixed review on you by the way uh <laughs> um which uh, uh was actually a good thing um but one of the things that you did at excess and you've done throughout your life is you um, you won't like the same, but you actually haven't built brands. What you've done is you've built bonds. And bonds are better than brands. Brands is selling features, selling attributes, selling, you know, talking about yourself, et cetera, which I know you're an expert at. Um, but uh, that's branding. Bonding is, is creating an experience. It's linking with values. It's linking with common interests. It's linking with, you know, common things that bind you, that bond you. And it's putting the consumer first and creating that community. And for me, with all of the experiential stuff that you did at Excess, it wasn't branding. That was bonding by putting the consumers first. And um, with where I see how you build brands going forward, which I've been a student of branding now for 25 years at some of the biggest and best branding companies in the world. Right. For me, it's about building bonds. It's about building communities, right? On and uh, having, going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, having passion and understanding for different cultures, having appreciation and respect for different uh, mindsets and perspectives, and having the courage to really get to those insights in those cultures and then connecting something on their terms 
that they want and they really need in their lives, whether they need to know, whether they know it yet or not. And it's about building the communities around those things. I think that's what we're doing with Noni and immunity. And that's why we're doing all of these community things also beyond that. And that's why we're doing the direct to consumer. That's why we're doing the social. That's why we're doing the Instagram. That's why we're doing the T-tail with QVC. Um, that's why we're doing the traditional retail because all of that is, is connecting a brand on their terms, uh, how they want it and how they want it, when they want it and, and how it interacts within their life. So um, my, my Machiavellian malfeasant mind in terms of wanting to partner with you and plug and play is, is you're this uh, upgrade from uh, Brazilian because it's, uh, it's Dutch, um, uh, number one, and, but it's still street fighter, uh, go make it happen kind of mentality, but it's also this incredible depth of knowledge on social, digital, and bonding, which for me is the next gen of how you build brands around the world. So I, I think this company is- Scars uh, on my knuckles, Brent, yeah. Yeah, no, dude, the company's <laughs> really lucky to, to have you to, to help guide it to that next level. And I'm smart enough to know, just get the hell out of the way and, and add value wherever I can and just you know, crack down the obstacles like we just done with, you know, let's stop investment on some of these things that don't make sense. Let's reallocate some of this investment against areas. Let's not have this huge corporate, you know, staffs and departments that aren't impacting sales and revenue and providing enough value for our IPCs around the world. And let's give them money and give them resources at the local level so they can crush it and hit it out of the park. Right. So these are all natural things and you've got the perfect skill set along with some of the other people that have come in both on your team directly and Julie Gerlikoff and the other people. I mean, it's just, it's just like perfect storm now in the middle of a storm to, just just go for it and, and you know put the pedal to the metal which is why i think we're having such a fantastic you know kind of past four months of performance and i don't see it stopping at all well look at some of the leaders i mean the, the thing that struck me when we got together and i think it ties into what you're saying about bonding i mean i, I agree with you i'm not a traditional cpg brand architect brand builder and and a big part of that is because that's not how we don't you know in the reason you build those brands, in my opinion, is because you're selling off of a shelf, right? You want awareness when somebody's standing in a store looking at a bunch of similar brands to pick yours. Um, you can do it on price, you can do it on features, you can do it on a lot of different reasons, and those are great tools and it's a great discipline, but that doesn't really help you very much in a direct selling business, right, or direct to consumer business. And, and so that I think that's fundamentally built on relationships and that's built on bonds. And the thing that I noticed, and so one of my big things when we were st started meeting was I wanted to meet some of those top leaders. I met John Wadsworth, I met Valencia Pamphil, and I met Art Lee since then, and a lot of the other great leaders, Saito-san and, and Suzuki-san, and all these great leaders uh, that we work with around the world. One of the things that struck me, um, and I learned it from John Wadsworth, was that originally when the company was founded, when Noni by New Age was founded, you know, the founders were all kind of distributors themselves. They were all kind of working together. The distributors were really front and center in the business. And then at some point in the last decade or so, this company ran into trouble. Um, they, re they retracted and tried to take more corporate control, build more corporate hierarchy and operate from a command and control, you know, top down dictate um, mentality. And it, 
It really ruined the culture, ruined the trust, ruined the bonds. And what's, what's been amazing to me is, you know, we're quickly reversing that and putting our, distrib our distributor partners, our IPCs, independent product consultants, front and center in the business, the core of the business, the place where we spend our time, money, and effort, and, and help, you know, this is something I learned in a lot of different places. We did it with Growers First and Coffee Regions, but, you know, it's, what are their top priorities that they want to fix? Let's list those. What are our top priorities as an organization, as an enterprise that we want to fix? Where those things interlap, let's pick the top three and double down on those and focus and fix those. And just that, what I call basic blocking and tackling, just those basic, like, why wasn't anybody doing this? The first step is no one was listening. The second step was nobody was, was thinking about these, these partners of ours who literally own the revenue, a lot of the revenue of the company. No one was really thinking about what they need. They were thinking about they the, the, the founders were sort of caring about themselves instead of caring about who they should care about, which is, you know, all of these people that are busting their ass every day in the field on the front lines. And if, you know, to your point, if, if we put them first, you know, they're our first customers. They're, they're, customers. they're also our customers. But, you know, if we put them first, the rest of it fixes itself. And if we don't this is put them first. What we talk about, yeah, and it's, uh, sorry, this is what we go, goes to back to what we talked about at the middle, at the very beginning is, you know, if you're going to be a leader in this context, leader, leadership is about caring, really caring, loving. I mean, in, in that word uh, that in, in everything that applies, loving those people, which means you have to put them first. You have to serve them first in a military context or a crisis context. It means doing what you have to do to get them out of the situation and lead them out of the situation, making those tough choices, whether it's layoffs or furloughs or you know, eliminating corporate people that aren't adding direct, eliminating some SKUs. You have to do all those things. That's all about servicing and serving the people that you care most about for their benefit, right? Whether they understand it or not, right? So, you know, we, we the company at some point lost that focus historically. We are getting that back quickly. And you have to give those field leaders like you talked about, John, Art, Valencia, Saito-san, Suzuki-san for being vocal and saying, hey, this is screwed up. We fixed it and we do. Um, and, 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 and it's interesting whether you go through West Point or Ranger School or SEAL School or which is like almost as good as a ranger school kind of thing. <laughs> that's good. Uh, uh, Rangers could swim. Yeah, no, that's yeah. good. Or Siri or airborne school. There's a book called grit out there that I'd recommend. Great that book. Talks yeah. about perseverance. Right. And I give those leaders that you talked about such respect for the perseverance and grit they showed and the loyalty they showed in a long, difficult context. And now that's getting rewarded. Now they're starting to see the benefits, but they had to show grit and perseverance through that period to get the, it wasn't for the reward, but they, it's just who they are and the quality of the people that they are. And, and I have such respect for them. And now in this time, it's even more important for them to demonstrate their grit to, to lead and persevere through this kind of context because the, all of their colleagues need them to demonstrate their grit once again. Well, it's, and it's been, you know, without giving material information away, it's just, you know, we're a public company, we have to be a little careful, but 
you know, it's remarkable. Crushing it, bro. We're crushing it, man. I just, I just, I'm so excited to see the the impact of these changes, even in our first quarter, and the ways that you know things like the CBD plus noni shot that we launched in Japan, how that you know really changed not only surprised people with the fact that we were launching a CBD ingestible in Japan, which is a very hard place to to register and, and produce these products. I mean, we're the first company to do that. Congratulations to you and the team for putting that together. Um, but when John Wadsworth and I went in there to help launch, you know, instead of having classroom spectator learning styles where there's a, you know, some leader on the stage and everyone's taking notes and you have no idea what they do with those notes when they're done. John and I went out into Harajuku and some of the edgier places of Tokyo, shared the shots with people shot videos of ourselves doing that and then we turned the classroom instead of into you know a spectator program into a learning by doing and, and a workshop creating action plans and the sparks that happened in the out of that were really remarkable it was just so much fun to watch you know because i didn't know coming into you know um the noni by new age business of some of the things we had done in the past that excess would transfer here I had an idea they would. I mean, people are people and business is business in a way. But it was just, it was so exciting to see the response and the engagement. And now you're seeing, you know, with Art in Valencia and US, I mean, we were, we started out reacting to this COVID epidemic in China where we didn't exactly understand what was going to be happening. We took a hit in February, came back strong in March, but took a hit. Jan, you know, some of the Asian markets also had these kind of reactive you know, impacts, you know, declines through it. You look at the way that we proactively attack this in Europe and the US after having that earlier knowledge. And, you know, I mean, the things that Art and Valencia are doing, the growth that they're seeing, it's, um, it's but great. now we're seeing that around the world too, because yeah. we're taking all those lessons. It's a, you know, it's it's almost like that early warning system that we got in Asia, and how you respond to this, and how you evolve, and how you change your network and your social selling to doing three and four times the you know kind of meetings that we we're doing before, and really forcing uh, our teams and our leaders to become you know socially centric, right? And this is. You know, I, I think of all these people out there, you, you know, we are a very purpose-driven company and we, we try to do the right thing. And when I look at all of these people that are losing their jobs around the world and the levels of unemployment, I mean, I just want, I want to figure out how to hold out the olive branch to them and give special offers or whatever we have to do Dave, to them because not only could you be part of our company, earn stock um, and have income in a time when you need income, but that you can also feel good about, you know, the products that we have and, and helping to address, you know, kind of the new businesses, unusual situation, the new normal, which is people are going to need to continue to, to live healthy and eat healthy and drink healthy. And, and you can feel good about everything that we do. So, so one of the things, I don't, I don't know if we've actually talked about this yet um, in specific, but one of the things that, um, that I've decided we're going to start doing uh, and aggressively doing is, you know, offering free training to anybody to use Zoom, to become a social media influencer, to start building a new life in a new way in this new world that we're living in, this new normal. And... Uh, follow-on training will be connected more to our business if they want to work with us and join us. But I think a part of what 
I want to be really careful about right now is not trying to push our business opportunity when people are afraid, but to help people build new skills and tools first. And for people who are effective at doing that and really put the effort in and do the homework and show that they're willing to change behavior, those are the people that we'd like, I think, to earn the opportunity to earn an offer from us to come work with us. Because I think, I think the idea that you know, the days of selling lottery tickets and direct selling, you know, hey, sign up with us, you're going to get rich, that bullshit's over. I never liked it to begin with, and we were working hard to get rid of it where I was before. But I, I think... It. I think we have this great it. opportunity now to really um, share. If they, even if they don't join us, so what? They've gotten right. some new skills. Exactly. Great. How do we help That's this great. world become better? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to be part of your team, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, this is, uh, you know, we've been going for a while, Brent. I think we need to do these uh, kind of maybe more frequently. This has been really good. And um, I appreciate you making time on a Sunday away from your family. You've got two beautiful daughters and a, a lovely young wife who's much younger than me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> apparently smarter than me too. But really? um, yeah, and, <laughs> stronger, faster. Um, but hey, I, I really appreciate you making the time today to get on the Kick Aspirational podcast to have this conversation. We'll be posting this, uh, you know, tomorrow. And um, we'll be feeling, maybe we can do one of these live and field questions and, uh, and see what people, what's on people's minds. We'd love to do it, man. Thank you so much, Dave. All right. Well, I'd like to wrap this up by saying, you know, um, this is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. It is about helping people live deliberately, breaking through barriers, have a better life. And most importantly, whatever people do this week, please be Kick Aspirational.